Does Texas Republican leadership want people running around with guns with no permits or not? Let's sort this out. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy Wallace is at houstonchronicle.com. He's just been covering everything going on this week. You've been running around. I see it all over your Twitter page. How are you, sir? Uh, yep. Guns are ablazing. Right? They are. There you go. Just, just so, so much happening. Is that uh, guns with people uh, who have permits that are blazing or not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it depends on which chamber you're in at any given time in the Texas legislature. <laughs> Careful how you use the word chamber when you're talking about guns. All right. Um, Lieutenant Governor Patrick and Governor Abbott are sort of doing a little dance on this question of what the uh, conservative activists across the state call constitutional carry. That's their marketing for it, constitutional carry. Yeah. Accurately, you would just say people with no permits can walk around with a gun anywhere they want, yep. essentially. That, I mean, there, there are some exceptions to this uh, in the law uh, as proposed, but that's the crux of it. Should people be able to carry with no permit? And you have a lot of Republicans who say, we have a system that works right now. You, uh, if you want to carry a gun, you can carry it openly. Uh, they passed that, you know in the last few years, uh, but you have to get a permit. You have to do yep. some safety training and things like that. There are a lot of Republicans who agree with that position that what we have now works just fine. The Texas house passed a bill that says you don't have to go through all that. You can just buy a pistol and carry it wherever you want with a few exceptions. Um, the governor is trying to have it both ways on this. Stop me. If you've heard this before, Jeremy, he's saying some things to conservative activists that would make you think that he's for it without actually saying that. Let me prove that. So Abbott was at uh, a Republican event, the big Reagan, you know, Lincoln Day dinner they do in Houston and, and at uh, you know, county parties all over the state. This year it was closed to press, which is not normal. It yeah. used to be we could walk in there and check it out and report on it. But um, in this instance, it was not. Abbott was there introducing one of the conservative stars right now. How do you say her name? Christy Nome. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think that's right. South uh, South Dakota governor. Uh, and he was praising her back on April 8th. The video of this was just released yesterday. Um, and at the event, Abbott's introducing Governor Nome. And listen to how he talks about this idea of constitutional carry in the context of the fact that Nome signed a bill on that in her state. She's also a leader for Second Amendment rights. She signed, she signed into law a stand-your-ground law, like what we have here in the state of Texas, and she signed into law a constitutional carry law, like what the state legislature is working on as we speak. You hear the applause there, and the way he said it, Jeremy, you would think, and everyone in that room would have good reason to think that he supports it, Yeah. right? He's saying she signed this bill that is constitutional carry. The crowd goes wild. It's, it's wonderful for him. It's great politics. What does he actually think about it, though, if he's asked about it point blank? There's another gun reference. Here's Abbott during a press conference, and I believe you were there. He was uh, yes. voting uh, voting in local elections, and he was promoting this ban on the uh, camping uh, by homeless folks in Austin. We can come back to that issue. That's mainly what he wanted to talk about and promote the idea that people should vote for reinstating this camping ban in Austin. But he was asked specifically by a reporter if he supports constitutional carry 
as is being debated in the Texas House and Texas Senate right now. Listen to his answer. Oh, I am, uh, as we are looking at all these bills as they're working their way through the Capitol, uh, and while we are working uh, to see what happens with legislation like that, uh, what I'm uh, focusing on uh, are the items that I listed uh, as emergency items, uh, items that I talk about in my state of state address. Uh, one thing that I've made clear, uh, and that is in order to avoid a special session, we have to pass the emergency items, we have to pass the items that I've talked about uh, in my state of state. Uh, and so we are working to make sure uh, that those issues are positioned in a way so we can get them across the finish line as we do continue uh, to watch uh, other legislation work its way through the process. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. So then you can hear other reporters try to jump in and ask questions. Maybe maybe ask a follow-up. <laughs> Jeremy wants to uh, you know follow up like, like a good reporter should. Again, the very liberally biased question was, are you in favor of that bill? That, that, you know, that's it. Uh, they're, they're not trying. It's not a gotcha. They're just asking him, you know, what do you think about it? And the answer was, well, I'm focused on other things. I laid out priorities in my state of the state speech. And we should note that none of those priorities included permitless carry of guns. Now, in his speech, he did say that Texas should be a sanctuary for the Second Amendment. You yep. remember that. Um, and this is one of those things where the governor, I think he enjoys this wordplay. He's a very smart attorney. He and Senator Cruz share this in common. Um, they could, from the governor's office, put out a statement, and, and maybe they'll do it in reaction to this podcast. We'll see. <laughs> they could put out a statement that says, well, the governor never actually said that he supports the constitutional carry bill, right? But I want you to listen to this again. Sarah, let's go back. Let's back up to what the governor said at that event in Houston. And you tell me, dear listener, if the words coming out of Abbott's mouth are designed to make everyone in that room think that he supports permitless carry of firearms. She's also a leader for Second Amendment rights. She signed, she signed into law a stand-your-ground law, like what we have here in the state of Texas, and she signed into law a constitutional carry law, like what the state legislature is working on as we speak. So in front of reporters in Austin, the answer is I'm focused on my priorities that I laid out in the state of the state. In front of a group of Republican activists, what he says is that this other governor signed a bill just like it, and the legislature is working on it as I'm talking to you. And the crowd goes wild, right? He's he's getting to have it both ways on this, Jeremy. So we have uh, Abbott doing that. We have the lieutenant governor, who interestingly does not appear to be all on fire to pass this, does he? In 2015, Lieutenant Governor Patrick had said that there weren't the votes in the Senate to pass constitutional carry or permitless carry. He's saying basically the same thing. Now, just this morning, uh, we had reported first at quorumreport.com and some other media, of course, picked this up, uh, including the Houston Chronicle, of course, uh, the fact that the Lieutenant Governor did something interesting overnight. He created a special committee to look at, quote, constitutional issues. Can you guess which issue went to that committee? And, and, and by the way, it's the only issue, Jeremy? Yeah. Uh, what have it something to do with constitutional carry? Yes, the, the, right. That's it. That's the only bill that's been referred to the committee. So we'll see what happens with that. I would think that it's simply a cover for people who were assigned to the committee. The Republicans on the committee can vote for it in committee even if it can't make its way to the Senate floor, we are told by the lieutenant governor's office that there still aren't the votes to move it through the entire Senate, which is how it would actually make its way to the governor's desk and potentially become 
the law of the land in Texas. The uh, messaging on this a little muddled from the Republicans, as, as we're proving to you with all this. On the Democratic side, what they think about it is pretty clear. Okay, they don't like it, uh, with some exceptions. In the Texas House, there were several Democrats who voted for this, but the vast majority of Democrats are not for it. Here's Joe Moody, Democrat from El Paso. You remember they had that massacre. When was that, in 2019? I mean, yeah, this just happened. August. This just happened in the last couple of years. Massacre at the Walmart. And as the constitutional carry bill was being debated in the Texas House, Moody wanted to remind his colleagues of what had happened that terrible day in El Paso. He says that um, when he first heard about it, that the shooting was unfolding at that Walmart, he was at church with some friends. And everyone's phones started buzzing. There was this sort of weird, nervous energy when we realized that a whole bunch of us were all getting calls at the same time. Sort of like that slow monster behind the door moment in a horror movie. You don't want to look, but you have to. And that's exactly what it was when we got the news. There was horror. There was a monster. And innocent people in my hometown were dead on the floor of a Walmart because a man wrote a racist manifesto, then grabbed a rifle and drove across Texas to kill Hispanic people. And did exactly that. 23 people were killed. Moody, in his comments, focused on one of them. The last one, Coach Memo. Held on in intensive care for nine long, painful months. And I'll always remember April 26, 2020, as the date he died. He was a father, a husband, a devoted teacher, and he was taken from us. Moody says, look, he's not against guns. In fact, I'm a gun owner, like a lot of us here. But I'm also like most Texans, Democrats, Republicans, and independents alike, in that we don't want felons to be able to buy a gun without a background check. We don't want a court to hold a hearing, grant a protective order against a domestic abuser, then have no way to enforce it. We want people who intentionally lie on background checks to be prosecutable. We want some common sense things we all know there's broad bipartisan support for in this state. We want this body voting on this floor on gun legislation that isn't just more guns. Moody and other Democrats lost the battle that day. The Texas House did pass the bill to allow people to walk around this state without a permit. Um, it's held up in the Senate. It looks like a probably, and I'm just uh, doing the back of the envelope math here, I think um, probably five or six Republicans who would probably be an obstacle to this. Uh, I don't even need to name them right now. I do think there are potentially some Democrats who would vote for it if it was on the floor of the Senate, but... I don't see Democrats voting to move it forward. As we have talked about before, Jeremy, they need all 18 Republicans to vote yep. for it to move it forward. There is a little game being played here legislatively, and this is down in the weeds, but that's where we live, especially at quorumreport.com. Um, in the Senate, 18 votes are required to bring the bill up for debate. They can't even talk about it on the floor until they get that number. Um, it's five-ninths of the Senate. Um, the lieutenant governor is really trying to have this both ways. He's sort of putting it off, and I said this. Uh, I said a version of this on a conservative radio show this week. The lieutenant governor can pass a bill out of the Senate if he wants to. We have seen him do this before. That it, It's almost like he is the Senate. 
if he really puts his shoulder into something, it passes. No question. Remember a few weeks back when he was um, the one pushing for electricity repricing? And guess what? They uh, basically suspended every rule in the rule book to pass that. And they, they filed the bill on the same day that they passed it on final passage off the floor. They held a hearing that same day in between that uh, because they were moving that bill on through. Uh, the lieutenant governor sort of throwing the Republican senators under the bus by saying there aren't enough votes to move this thing forward. When all the conversations I've had, Jeremy, indicate that the lieutenant governor, he's polled the senators, and he's been talking to them, asking them if they're for it, but he's not leaning on them. And he's not saying there will be consequences if you don't vote for this. He's not doing that as he would with other things. Um, and so I wonder uh, where we go from here. He, he created this committee. I think, as I said, that's probably just cover for some of those Republicans to vote for it in committee so they can say that they did. But as far as actually becoming the policy in Texas, Republicans want to say they're for it without actually doing it. Well, and here's the problem. The problem here is three little words for Republicans, which is back the blue. You know, if you think about all of the, the, the work they've done to fight, you know, places they thought were defunding the police or, you know, mm-hmm. fighting better work for not being respectful enough to the police or whatever. They've been they've baked it into the DNA of the Texas Senate for sure. Uh, that you know, back the blue is the number one thing. And Dan Patrick himself, you can see he's he's you know made defending and you know supporting the police a key part of his political identity. You know, mm-hmm. he's made that there. And so when you have the police against constitutional carry or permitless carry, as like when the police are coming out against that, they were you know in front of the state capitol. Uh, you know, spelling out their problem with this legislation, saying they're not going to be able to discern whether a good guy is carrying a gun or a bad mm-hmm. guy. Uh, it's a safety hazard for them. And so in order to you know, pass constitutional carry, they'd have to do it over the objections and not back the blue. Mm-hmm. And so you, you see these two mega priorities in the Re- Republican Party of Texas kind of colliding with one another right now of like, how do you ignore what the police are saying, please don't do, and you know, yet still you know, be the Second Amendment defender that you want to be? And I think that's where Patrick kind of found himself. I understand why he's in this spot, because mm-hmm. like, if, if they pass this thing through, they now all of a sudden are doing something you know, no, not many law enforcement support, you know, that you can't find too many police in Houston who want to see, you know, just anybody carrying a gun through the streets of Houston and not know if they should have it or not. Yes, I would point out it's not the first time Republican leadership, including Patrick, has basically put their fingers in their ears when the police were against something, though. Um, I can think of many issues, and and a lot of them were gun issues. In fact, uh, those law enforcement groups were all against open carry. They didn't want to see that happen. The big police chiefs were, uh, big city police chiefs were against that. Uh, Prosecutors are not for that. Uh, Prosecutors certainly are not in favor of permitless carry of firearms either. Um, When it came to campus carry and people being able to have a firearm on a college campus, law enforcement was not in favor of that. Immigration. Um, When they passed the sanctuary cities ban back in 2017, All law enforcement said, you are making our jobs harder because we already have to operate in immigrant communities where people are skeptical of police in the first place. And if you make it the law in Texas that we have to enforce 
immigration law, it's going to make it that much harder to go after people who are, you know, the rapists and murderers and all of that in those communities because people who were witnesses to crimes won't want to talk to us. What is different when it comes to permitless carry? I will answer the question. It is extreme. It is an extreme position to say that, and look, there are gradations to all this, right? There are some of these pieces of legislation that people won't agree with for whatever reason. Uh, People didn't agree with open carry because they saw that as extreme, but at least that still required people to have some sort of uh, a permit that, that comes with training and other things like that and some way to track who these people are, right? Do you have a permit or not? Uh, do you have a license or not to have that weapon? To be, as as Moody said there, you wouldn't be able to, you know, figure out uh, who might not be uh, able to or shouldn't be able to get a gun when they've had, um, you know, a protective order filed against them, things like yep. that, trying to find people who might be murderers, showing up to a scene uh, where there are bullets flying and you can't figure out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. There was a shooting in my neighborhood, on Sunday, this past Sunday, three people killed in a domestic situation. It took them a whole day to find the guy. There was an active manhunt. They found him miles away in Elgin, Texas. And all the police would say that if you had permitless carry, it makes a situation like that harder to respond to in the moment and harder to investigate after the fact. Yep. This is extreme. And the people who are supporting this, look, there are Republicans who really do believe that this is a good idea. I'm not questioning that. There are Republicans. There are Republicans who believe that the Second Amendment is my permit and I shouldn't have to have any other paperwork to be able to carry a gun. But I'll tell you what, for the Republicans who voted for this in the Texas House, there are a bunch of them who probably thought twice before they hit the yes button. They represent suburban districts where there are a lot of voters who don't agree with this. Um, Charles Perry, interestingly, who is uh, from Lubbock, Texas, a senator from West Texas, he told my friend Chad Hasty, Chad Hasty on his radio show uh, just recently that uh, he had a poll that showed 80% of people in his district, which is not a suburban area, that is a rural district, yep. 80% of people there do not agree with permitless carry of firearms. This is an extreme position, and it should tell people something that it's it's even too much for Dan Patrick, who has not been somebody... Uh, who has been moderate in his views on almost anything. Uh, but Patrick was the one, as you remember, to say after the uh, after a couple of these mass shootings that he would be the one in the Republican Party to buck the NRA when it came to expansion of background checks and things like that. It may be, um, as they say, too cute by half on the part of the Speaker, Dade Phelan, to lob this political hand grenade over to the Senate and say, you deal with it. Yeah. Right, because that's been the pattern with Patrick in the past. Is he would pass this ultra conservative legislation, goes to the House, and it would die over there. And on this issue, the Texas House this time passed it, sent it over to the Senate, perhaps betting that Patrick won't allow it to pass. But that's also betting on the idea that Patrick doesn't really feel that he has to answer to conservative voters going forward. Uh, on the specific issue that he's he's either he's conservative enough on other things, and so he can withstand the criticism on this, or there is more and more chatter that Patrick is getting set to retire 
and that he's not going to run again. And so it really doesn't matter for him. Or, or as you know, it's like he's a maniacal polar, right? You know, maybe he's seeing something in their polling that shows that, you know, this isn't, you know, the kind of like what Char- Charles Perry was still, you know, saying, you know, maybe there are not nearly as many Republicans who want this, you know, type of legislation after mm-hmm. all. So he must have something that's showing him this is not nearly as dangerous. Again, I, I think he's able to, you know, grab cover saying, look, I was listening to the police. You know, it's like, and I always will back the blue. He has a built-in, you know, great way to defend himself against any of the right-wing groups that come at him on the issue, I think. The House and Senate have now voted to require special sessions of the legislature, either when a disaster goes on for an extended period or when there's federal money, billions of dollars in federal money to be appropriated. This is fascinating. So we already told the listeners previously about the fact that the Texas Senate had voted to have a special session be automatic if a declared disaster for basically most of the population of Texas or all of us, uh, like happened during the pandemic and did happen as well during the ice storm, even though that was uh, a shorter period of time. Um, If it goes on for a month, then they have an automatic special session. Yesterday, during the budget debate in the Texas House, an amendment was added to require a special session to deal with all of the federal money that's coming in. We're talking about billions and billions. I mean, just part of it is about $40 billion in federal funds that's going to be coming to Texas here in the next month or two. Um, And there had been some proposals to have a special board of maybe 10 people uh, advise the governor on this. And lawmakers thought that's not good enough, Jeremy. Over the last year, The governor has been making so many decisions unilaterally, whether it came to CARES Act money, uh, how to respond to the pandemic. He asserted that local officials had no control over any of that when it came to pandemic response and that only his office had authority over that. And you can tell now, by the way Republicans are voting, not by what they're saying, but but, but by the way they're voting, that they're frustrated with that. Remember, when they passed it out of the Senate, Brian Birdwell, the author of the Constitutional Amendment on this, he had praised Governor Abbott's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and he said this wasn't up, you know, it's not about this specific governor. It's about allocation of power across the branches of government. That's my paraphrase of it. Um, but in the House, it almost seemed like a big bipartisan, unanimous middle finger to the governor when everyone voted in favor of having the legislature make these decisions about federal funding coming in rather than have the governor do it unilaterally. I think that the natives are restless would be one way to say it, uh, Jeremy. And and look, it may be that it's not just about Governor Abbott and his response. For a lot of these Republicans, they probably like some of the things he did and they don't like some of the other things that he did. Wasn't it Alan West, the chairman of the Texas Republican Party, who was the most critical of yeah. the way Abbott was making decisions when it came to shutting down businesses and that sort of stuff during the pandemic? I don't know that he was that vocal about these federal dollars. But it's pretty clear the way that government is set up, whether it's in Congress in Washington or, you know, at the state capitol in Austin, the legislative branch appropriates money. The governor doesn't do it on his own. And these proposals to have him do it on his own, that's not flying with these folks, Jeremy. 
Well, and, and we're such a different state on this, right? Because we only have our legislature meet once every two years. Like they can't respond to this like some other you know state governments are able to do. Like in New York, you know, when that this money comes, the legislature is always in session. You know, it's like you're fine. It's like you can you know pick this stuff up and you know disperse that money how you have it. Mm-hmm. But you know, for any governor of Texas, not just Abbott, it's like once the legislature's gone, it's like you have complete control over everything until they come back yeah. and wag their finger at you as. The, the house felt like this week, you know, it felt like they're wagging their finger going, Abbott, you can't do this next time without calling us. You know, it's like, and, and, and you, you mentioned the Birdwell bill yeah. uh, that would have the constitutional amendment, but it also, remember it has that provision. If you have to shut down the government or uh, shut down businesses, you have to immediately call the legislature to do it. It's like, he has to call a special session the day he has to, you know, you know, tell haircutters that they have to shut down. Right. right? And so it's like you can see they're just trying to take this, you know, like the governor of Texas doesn't have nearly as much power as other governors have mm-hmm. because of the way the structure is set up. The, the lieutenant governor has so much power to set the agenda and to pass budgets and all that kind of stuff. And the governor has his veto abilities, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's still like Texas has generally had a weaker form of governor, you know, compared to other places. By taking this, these emergency powers away from the governor, you just further, you know, weaken that structure of what the governor can and can't do. Yeah, and it seemed like in the background, the governor's office uh, has been working very hard to try to preserve the power that the governor was uh, asserting that he had during most of the last year or so. Um, You might remember we had reported out these conference calls that the governor was having with lawmakers and state yep. agencies, local officials, et cetera, during the, you know, all throughout the, the, the entirety of 2020, just about, and into this year. Um, at some point, it became um, part of the discussion that the governor was at least consulting with the leadership of the Texas House and Senate before different federal funding was being dispersed, that he was talking with uh, the finance chair, uh, Senator Jane Nelson, and the then appropriations chairman, uh, Giovanni Capriglione, about uh, the way that money would be spent. But that was, uh, there's nothing transparent about that. They were saying this on private conference calls. Yep. Right. That we were reporting out what was being said on the calls. Um, believe me, if there's a hundred people on a phone call, I'll figure out what they said. Uh, but 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 the fact of the matter is that what the governor seemed to be comfortable with was formalizing that process. That maybe he could just sort of talk to uh, the heads of the finance and appropriations committees, and that's good enough. Um, but when it actually went to a vote of the house, they said, "Hell no." They, they absolutely want to be right in the mix of deciding how tens of billions of dollars in federal funding is going to be allocated. Also in that budget debate, um, and it was, you know, for the most part, kind of subdued. And yeah. this was not a long budget debate either. People said, wow, it was 11 hours. How do you say it wasn't long? I've seen those go till six in the morning the next yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it wrapped up around 2 a.m. in the yep. uh, house listening to one of those hearings. It, it wrapped up around uh, 10 p.m. on Thursday night, which that's a short budget debate. Um, Medicaid expansion gets the big thumbs down once again. We had reported out earlier in the week that there's one proposal to expand Medicaid that does have majority support in the Texas House, and that's still true. Uh, Representative Julie Johnson from Dallas uh, has a proposal that's her version of Medicaid expansion to try to get coverage to about 1.5 million extra Texans. Right now we have, what, about 5 million people with no coverage, which of course 
is the highest rate of uninsured in the United States. We should start with that. Um, Last week after we did the show, the um, Biden administration dropped the hammer on Texas by canceling, and the Washington Post had this first, uh, they got the letter from uh, from the federal government uh, saying that they were canceling out this agreement that the Trump administration had come to with Abbott's administration to allow Texas to go 10 more years on a federal waiver uh, that it adds up to about a $100 billion plan over the decade. Biden said it was rushed and Texas could start over. They didn't say they can't do it, but they said they have to start over. So there is more leverage for those who want to expand Medicaid. Arguing in favor of expansion of health insurance is senior Democrat from Houston, Garnett Coleman. I've been in this house for 30 years. I came in and started working on getting people health coverage the day I walked in the door, and actually before the day I walked in the door, because I thought it was very important, particularly because people with mental illness illness could not get care. And the only answer to that was to make sure that they could get health coverage. But because of pre-existing conditions, they couldn't. Uh, And anyone who had cancer or anyone who had any other condition could not. And our high-risk pool in the state of Texas Texas, charged two times the cost of a a traditional premium for anybody who had an an uncovered position uh, condition. And it's very important to know that. Coleman uh, struggles a little bit now these days. He's he's in poor health and he has been for a while. You know, I've known Garnet Coleman for probably about... 20 years, Jeremy, and uh, he used to be sort of a big, hulking guy. Uh, I remember he was one of the lead Democrats when the Democratic uh, caucus fled to Oklahoma yep. years ago when they That's were right. uh, trying to deny the uh, quorum. They called them the Killer Ds back in the day, uh, and they were trying to deny quorum uh, for the House to move forward with the redistricting that was being uh, pushed by Tom DeLay, the majority leader at the time, the Republican from Sugarland. And, uh, of course, they were saying, you've got to win one for George W. You know, that was the thing, uh, as they were going to shore up Republican dominance in Texas for the next decade. And they sure did uh, in the end on that. Um, but he's been really suffering lately. And I, I just want to say uh, on a personal level, it was kind of hard to watch him uh, yesterday. One of the uh, one of the speeches he gave where he was trying to add one of the amendments, uh, he could barely get through the sentence. And other members of the legislature sort of would have to stand behind him and kind of prop him up physically because yeah. uh, he's having a hard time. Um, so I hope he's doing, I hope he uh, is doing well, but it, it is hard to see him uh, in that shape. And somebody said yesterday that even though his amendment was not successful in trying to expand more coverage, they said nobody could have tried harder. All right. So he was talking about the fact that a total of, and I, do, I was not aware of this number, Jeremy, a total of 659,000 Texans lost their employer-sponsored insurance between February and May of 2020, yep. just in the last year. You know, yep. we're talking about a, a ton of people who really got screwed on this deal during the pandemic. Uh, Coleman said that his proposed amendment for a new 1115 Medicaid waiver was written broadly enough that it could be a state-created and state-approved solution, basically a Texas solution for the uninsured in our state. He said it would help to maximize the Medicaid funds coming from Washington. I understand and accept that some of you don't or can't support Medicaid expansion, but all this amendment does is to direct HHC and the governor to seek a waiver, a demonstration waiver, to bring our federal tax dollars home to help reduce the number of uninsured. And I think both Democrats and Republicans 
can support th that fiscal responsibility goal. And just like Z John Zerwas asked this House to uh, do something very similar, I ask for your support of this amendment. Thank you, Member. John Zerwas, who he mentioned there, is a former appropriations chairman, a Republican from Fort Bend County, who was well thought of on both sides of the aisle, and he had tried to push something similar in the past, um, this argument over drawing down federal dollars under the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, as it is known. It's just a no-go with Republicans. In the end on this, Jeremy, only one Republican that I saw uh, voted in favor of the Coleman Amendment. That would be Lyle Larson, Republican from San Antonio. On the other side of this argument, uh, Republican Representative Giovanni Capriglione asked the members to vote no. I must respectfully ask that you vote no on this amendment. This topic is incredibly important. It's complex. But frankly, it's not appropriately handled in this amendment. This, this amendment is relatively brief. It doesn't even mention really the cost of probably the most massive expense that we would be bringing on to the state. And it has not had a public debate as well. Um, I also want to be clear in, in response to some of the things that was mentioned, but this, this amendment does in fact expand Medicaid to include all persons for whom federal matching funds are made available to. What I'll also say is that this has, this amendment really has nothing to do with the recent uh, rescission of the 1115 waiver. That is a, a separate topic um, and it's independent of this, this particular amendment. Capriglione mentioned uh, that these are two different topics, the 1115 waiver and Medicaid expansion. There is a high watermark now for support of Medicaid expansion in the Texas House. 76 members did sign on to that bill I mentioned uh, by Representative Julie Johnson from Dallas, which is, I should say, a different propo proposal from what uh, Coleman was talking about. Correct. Um, yeah. But, Jeremy, the reality is we are still nowhere close to Republicans being able to support this um, this proposal in a general sense, in a philosophical sense, because I think they're afraid of being attacked during their Republican primaries for supporting Obamacare. You might think that all these years later, that might not matter, but it does. Oh, absolutely. And it's like, and so it, it's interesting. So you can look at, you know, you know, past White Houses as like how this could play out, right? You know, uh, Mike Pence, when he was governor of Indiana, they did somewhat of what Coleman was suggesting this week. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a way to kind of, you know, tap into that federal money without doing a full embrace of Obamacare. And Governor Mike Pence at that time allowed that to go through. So there's a pathway that Texas could follow that, uh, that Indiana has lit for us. Mm -hmm. But as you pointed out, like, does Dan Patrick want to end uh, this session, you know, with this criticism from the right saying he just expanded Obamacare. Mm -hmm. Like, who wants to go into a primary, in a Republican primary, anywhere in the state, you know, with their opponent saying, this guy is trying to keep Obamacare alive. Right. You know, it's like, that's just toxic in super conservative districts. And so you can see there's just like a political weight, even though, as you point out, there's 5 million people who probably could use some health care, mm -hmm. uh, at least some coverage, you know, with insurance. You know, certainly, you know, Medicaid would really patch a lot of holes that we have in our system. Uh, and, and for hospitals, you know, mind you, remember, you know, when these bills don't get paid, it's the hospitals, you know, that, you know, take on 
the expenses. And so you can see the problem here kind of is you know clear, but there's just a big political problem. Mm-hmm. Until you get Obama off the name of this legislation, it never it can get resolved by conservative Republicans. Yeah, they would have to forget that Barack Obama was ever president of the United States. It's not about to happen. Um, and it's not just places like Indiana, but liberal bastions like Arkansas. Yep were able to work out deals on Medicaid expansion. And and it's not just that they accepted, in, in Arkansas specifically, they didn't just accept the Medicaid expansion the way it was laid out in the ACA originally. They worked out their own deal. Yeah. You think that Texas doesn't have the kind of leverage to work out its own deal on this? But there has yeah. been no political will to do that whatsoever. And, and one thing about the hospitals that you mentioned, um, it's interesting that people do mix up these issues because they do go together, but there is nuance to it. So on the 1115 waiver, which was, and I'm not an expert on this, and I don't even pretend to be one uh, when I'm writing or when I'm on the podcast, but they are sort of separate. So the the 1115 waiver was supposed to be a sort of a stopgap measure to be able to provide uh, a backstop for these, uh, especially for the hospitals that use their money to draw down federal dollars to be able to uh, make themselves whole or closer to whole uh, when it comes to what they call uncompensated care. So when you go to the hospital and you can't pay, who pays for it? Somebody does, right? So you have that. Then you also have this question of broader Medicaid expansion. And it was pointed out by the head of the uh, Texas Hospital Association, Ted Shaw, who is the president and CEO at THA. He said, look, Texas is too big and too diverse to have a one-size-fits-all solution for this. He's saying you need both, that you need Medicaid expansion in some form, and you need an 1115 waiver so that these hospitals can continue to draw down federal dollars and be made whole or closer to whole for their what they call uncompensated care. So yep. as you said, I don't think politically we're anywhere close to this being uh, re- you know, resolved by the Texas legislature, but we will continue to track it. This anti-transgender kids in sports bill, is that thing dead, Jeremy? What's going on with that? Yeah, this is a week of killing bills, I think. Uh, th- this bill is in serious jeopardy. Look, nothing in this process is ever dead. And nothing, you know, is ever certain to pass, right? We know this by now. We've done this long enough to know that there's always a way to bring Frankenstein back to life. <laughs> but in For this sure. case, uh, you know, the the, uh, the the House clearly is not going to be able to pass this out of committee. They don't have the votes, or they say they don't have the votes, so they're never going to send this to the floor. Uh, there's other ways around that, of course. Mm-hmm. But this is a serious blow to the whole thing, uh, and it's going to have a hard time kind of getting out there because nobody's really clamoring to do this in the House, you mm-hmm. know, so much so that they want to stop everything to make sure it gets through. Uh, but you can see, and the timing of this is really interesting to me. So the, you know, you know, this legislation, you know, has momentum all around the nation. At one point, mm-hmm. uh, you saw some, you know, lots of state legislatures. I think thirty different state legislatures were picking up bills that dealt with, you know, transgender athletes yeah. uh, and trying to stop transgender girls from being able to play girls' sports, particularly. Well. Uh, but what we've seen in the last week, ever since the NCAA came out and said, hey, y'all, we're watching you. Mm-hmm. You, know, it's like you go forward with these bills, essentially at the risk of losing future you know, site selection for championship you know, games and things like that, which can be billions of dollars. And for smaller states, you know, even just a regional you know, NBA, you know, NCAA basketball game is a big deal, right? And so mm-hmm. most states have started to back off. You know, Florida killed their bill earlier this week. 
uh, in North Dakota and in Kansas, governors in both two states vetoed you know, similar bills to this. And yeah. now it looks like the Texas version of this is, you know, obviously seriously on the ropes. And so you can see a momentum has kind of shifted in another way. And I kind of have to give credit to, you know, not only to the LGBTQ community that's been really pushing against these bills, mm -hmm. but also for the NCAA in making their position abundantly clear. Yeah. And nobody really wants to kind of risk like an unnecessary fight with the NCAA. As you as we mentioned earlier, uh, South Dakota's governor, Christy Nome, had ended up vetoing portions of their bill and yeah. specifically cited the potential conflict with the NCAA as one of her big reasons why she did it. Well, and I remember that for a hot minute, the conservative base was very angry with Christy Nome for having done that. Correct. But you heard earlier in the show... Greg Abbott pumping her up as some solid conservative, right? It seems yeah. like they got over it, is yeah. my point. Uh, I think it was an exclusive at HoustonChronicle.com, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Taylor Goldenstein getting the quote from the chairman of the Public Education Committee, uh, Harold Dutton, saying that they didn't have the votes to pass the bill out of his committee. Here's the quote. That bill is probably not going to make it out of committee. We just don't have the votes for it, but I promised the author I'd give him a hearing, and we did. They had some emotional testimony on this. As you mentioned, the transgender and LGBTQ community coming out really strong against this. Some of that testimony sounded like this. This is 17-year-old Charlie Apple. What a great name. Charlie Apple. It's like a Disney character. Charlie Apple. It, it, I, I want people to listen to this. I, we'll, we'll play a little bit longer uh, piece of audio from Charlie. It's worth hearing. He testified on the Senate version of this uh, earlier in the year. Uh, and he said that playing sports literally saved his life. For most of my life, I have participated in competitive martial arts. Uh, so you can imagine my excitement whenever I, find, I found out I had the opportunity to join my high school wrestling team. It, w it just so happened that around the same time, I had started to live my life fully transitioned as a man. Uh, however, many did not see this as a positive development in my life. Uh, many who, people who I respected and looked up to ended up turning their backs on me and refusing to treat me not as a child, but as an abnormality and something to be fixed. Because of these experiences, I knew that I ran the risk of being mocked or hurt if I returned to my original uh, sports communities. And so these school sports gave me the vital chance to find a community when I was at my most vulnerable. I had felt isolated and unsure of my future However, wrestling greatly changed that and changed my course, the course of my life going forward. I was given support and encouragement from my coaches and treated with respect and dignity by my teammates, both experiences I had not had previously. I wasn't treated as inherently dangerous or an abnormality. I was treated as a kid, which is what I needed at the time. This band will take vulnerable children like myself and send the message that there's something to be identified and isolated from their peers. This band will hurt children like me. Sports saved my life, and I beg of you to allow this to continue for other kids like myself. And vote against SB 29. Thank you for your time. Couldn't be nicer, couldn't be more genuine, and of course the Texas Senate immediately dismissed that and passed the bill. 
Yeah. Right. You forget whatever kid that basically is the attitude. It goes over to the Texas house. They had another marathon hearing. They went late into the night on that one yep. as well. They did. Um, and uh, this is a question that you probably get a lot. And I get this a lot. People will ask, does the testimony really matter when the lawmakers have already made up their minds? And it's something that maybe the base of their party wants to see happen. Does it matter that somebody comes and spills their guts like that and, you know, t- talks about their life experience? I do know that the father of uh, this kid uh, cried when he was talking about all of this. And, uh, you know, I mentioned the kid's name sounding kind of like from a Disney movie uh, that the father joked. He said, well, I'm, I cry at everything. I cry at Disney movies. You know, he's, he's just talking about his life and he's, he's weeping, you know, during this thing. Um, I'm here to tell you. What happens at the legislature on issues like this, one of the things that happens, is that those human interactions can make a difference. There may have been a Republican or two on the education committee who was going to vote for it and then heard stories like that and said, I can't do it. That absolutely matters. And, you know, they may look at... Um, some polling, it's, it can be very, as you mentioned earlier on one of the other issues on the guns, for example, we talked about the polling. Um, they do look at that and they consider that politically and what it means in their primaries and in general elections and all, and all of that. But it also matters when somebody comes and says, if you do this, you're going to ruin my life. You're going to ruin people's lives that are like me. And I would beg you to not do it. Um, and it, it's not all just cold political calculus. It can be that a lot of I've seen the opposite for sure. (laughs) I have seen it absolutely not matter. Uh, But when people ask, do their voices matter at the Capitol? They sure do. But it usually has to do with moving a needle, you know, rather than moving the whole mountain all at once. Yeah, exactly. I think it does have effects on the sides, right? You know, so you can't really like, you know, the chairman of the committee may have marching orders that says, just get that bill out of there. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like, and so he's going to do what he has to do or she has to do. But, you know, but for the other members of the Senate or the House, even if it's not even in their chamber, when they start hearing that, uh, story and when they start meeting these people who actually will be affected by the legislature, it's hard to imagine it doesn't affect them in some way, right? You know, it has to move, you know, some people, to, even if they just have a personal face when they're in mm-hmm. that debate the next time talking about the bill, they can't say, I've never met somebody. You know, it's like they can now go back and realize, no, there is a kid who is going to, you know, be, you know, have yet more garbage thrown at them, mm-hmm. you know, because of a bill like this. The new poll uh, showing that Matthew McConaughey would smoke Governor Abbott uh, from the UT Tyler poll. This has everybody talking. Jeremy, it's one of those stories that transcends the uh, political news coverage uh, that you and I participate in. Because I was driving around the other day and I flipped the stations on Sirius XM. I go from the country station to the hit station. I like the one that plays all the... Uh, 80s and 90s grunge and I just go I, you know and then you know the red dirt country I'd I listen to it all yep I love it I, and then I turn on uh, hit, uh, what is it uh, um, shade four or five and hip-hop nation people would be surprised at what I listen to I listen to everything and I was listening to one of those hit stations and they mentioned this poll uh, you know it's a national audience listening to you know the basic Ariana Grande and, and those kinds of artists, <laughs> Taylor Swift and that sort of stuff. And in between songs, they mentioned that Matthew McConaughey is being taken seriously as a candidate for governor of Texas. You saw this poll. Um, and 
you know, these folks who don't know anything about the political lay of the land in Texas, they would see it and think, oh, wow, this is amazing. He could win. He could beat Greg Abbott. The poll showed uh, that 45 percent of Texas registered voters, which is already a red flag right there. It's registered voters. I'll tell you why in a second. 45 percent of Texas registered voters would vote for McConaughey. 33 percent would vote for Abbott and 22 percent would vote for somebody else. Is McConaughey really thinking about running for governor of Texas? He's been selling this book all over the place. What's it called? Green Lights Yep, that he's selling. He was talking with Al Roker on NBC back in March after the ice storm. Remember McConaughey was trying to, yeah. you know, do some, uh, do some fundraisers for people who were affected by the storm and all that. And Roker asked the question, are you really thinking about running for governor of Texas? Correct me if I'm wrong. You are considering running for Texas governor? Look, it's a very honorable consideration. What I've got to choose for myself is I want to get into a leadership role in the next chapter of my life. Now, what role am I going to be most useful in? I don't know that that's in a political position or if that's me as a free agent. So that's something I'm personally working on is what is my position of most use in a leadership role? Now, what did you think about this poll, Jeremy? Uh, okay, so a good <laughs> sign to the, to the listener out I like there it. is that you said, <sighs> I did not write about this poll. All right. And that should be a signal already. That's the first uh, to deal. people. Yeah, that's the first thing. One, you know, like, I tweeted about it. That's about how seriously I took it. Yeah, it's like the, look, you know, the media overwrites about polls all the of time. Yep. You know, it's like, and and we kind of misunderstand a lot of times what polls mean. And it's like in this case, the hypothetical of Matthew McConaughey, you know, running. We don't know if he's a Democrat or Republican. Right. We don't know any of his positions. The moment right. and we've he talked says about that, we, you know, he has not voted in any yep. primary elections in Texas. Uh, to your point about him uh, being very secretive about his politics. Yep. We have not seen any political contributions from him to Republicans or Democrats. No, no, as I mentioned, no primary voting history. We don't know what the hell he would do if he was going to run for office. Yeah. Would it be as a Democrat? Would it be as a Republican or as an independent? None of that is known. Yeah, and, and the moment he like, has to go on record, where does he stand on, say, you know, pro-life or pro-choice type issues? Like, obviously, the polls will shift. But the second thing that's really of, you know, frustration to me, the UT, Dal- you know, UT Tyler, you mm-hmm. know, Dallas Morning News poll, I'm going to throw some shade on them. Here we go. <laughs> I have to. It's just I'm like, ready. Like, this is the same oh, poll. I'm going to get nasty. By the way, I'll get nasty notes from people who do polling for a living. About it, one thing that happens with the pollsters, they like to talk trash on each other, and they love to talk trash on us for how we cover the polls. Of course. So I'm ready for that. So go ahead. Well, in, in this case, let's remember the UT Tyler Dallas Morning News poll uh, just uh, a, a week or so out from the presidential election had Joe Biden winning Texas by three or four points. Yeah. So right. it's like, let's remember this. Mm-hmm. And Joe Biden, of course, uh, lost the state by six you know, plus points. Yes. So it's like, that's a, that's a pretty huge swing of like one week you're told, you know, Joe Biden's going to win and the next week he gets beat pretty comfortably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and again, I don't, I don't mean to single out one pollster, but when you see Matthew McConaughey's going to be governor, you just can't help but say, wait, who's saying that? Oh, the ones who said President Biden was going <laughs> to win Texas. Just Serious shade you're dropping. In, 
Yeah, put that in context. I can't even see anymore. It's so dark in here with all the shade <laughs> that's going on. You know, that it's always the pollsters who want to lecture the rest of us about how yes. we need to get more data before we come to conclusions about things. Let me tell you, in my long tenure as a journalist in Texas, um, on-the-ground reporting matters a lot, right, when we're yeah. trying to figure out what's going to happen in these races. You take the polls into consideration, but you also uh, take into consideration the fact that polls have become less and less accurate as we yeah. have moved through the past few election cycles, and there are multiple reasons for that. There's some really fascinating reporting on why they've gotten so bad. Um, and then on top of that, it's the it's the season of guessing about the next election because when a lot of people think of politics, they can't think of anything other than what's going to happen in the next election. Yep. And people jump straight to the next governor's race. There are people who are doing entire pod. I refuse to do shows like this. If they ask me to go on a show, like I would say no. And I've done that. I have, I've denied interviews. If they want me to talk about what's going to happen in the next presidential election, I won't even talk about it. <laughs> I don't care. You know, there, yep. are, there are entire... Um, podcasts and articles and entire publications dedicated to what's going to happen in the next presidential race. And I don't care about that. Yep. We're too far away from that. I don't know how that's going to shape up. Do I have some opinions about it? Sure. Are any of them worth anything? No. So I'm going to hold off on that for now. Um, I think when it comes to Abbott, the only comment that I really have about this poll is the fact that he would appear weak against someone who has no stated positions on anything, no track record of being involved in politics at all. I think it does, if there's anything to this poll, and people will say, okay, look, they were off in that last election. That's right. I also got some text messages from some Republican pollsters who said, look, the, the sampling of Democrats was way too high, and you know, they didn't consider what, you know, they didn't have, you know, weighted toward Republicans or any of this stuff. Whatever, forget all that. The fact is that if you're Greg Abbott, and you see that there's a general election poll that has you down double digits to someone who has never been involved in politics, you would take that seriously for this reason. He does know that over the last year, it has not just been Democrats who have not been happy with him. Yep. Republicans have been unhappy with him. Democrats are unhappy with him. As we talked about earlier in the show, you have Republican and Democratic lawmakers taking hard positions against his positions uh, when it comes to uh, a whole host of things including the main thing being how the state is run. Uh, and so, look, they're girding their loins for a big fight. Greg Abbott will have something on the order of, if he runs for re-election, something like 55 to $60 million in the bank, right? And there is no one who can come close to that. So if I'm, if I'm sounding critical of Abbott, I might be sounding even more critical of Democrats. If he's weak like that in that poll and they can't come up with anybody credible to run against him, that maybe says even more about Democrats in the state, because who's yep. going to run against Abbott? I mean, they're still kind of uh, keeping the place open for Beto O'Rourke, I think, as you pointed yep. out before. He had said, oh, I'm not running for governor. And then he, then he talked to you and said, well, actually, I just said I'm not running right now. Yeah. Right? So he, yep. so and, and when is the filing deadline for the next primary? It's not yeah, till well, December. Yeah. 
at the yeah at the late it, it could even be further you know into next year because of redistricting yeah. and all the numbers they're messing around with but yeah so we got a long way to go it's certainly uh, and look i love a good political fight i love actually i'm the opposite of you i like talking about what's happening in the next presidential cycle or yeah, the I don't next give, governor I don't cycle care about that. but in this case it's way too early to get too deep into that you know talk to me later on in the in the summer you know, as people are really doing some work on the ground, then I'm willing to talk more about, yeah. you know, who's running for governor. Yeah, that's why it bores me to tears. When they go on this uh, tear about, you know, oh, how is Cruz positioning yep. himself? How is Josh Hawley positioning himself? Oh, Chris Christie is teasing out that he might for, you know, he might run for president. I, yep. I click My, the I click the X box. I, I, I click the little X at the top of the window because I'm not even going to read that story. Yep. I hate to yep. break it to you. Well, and, and so I always go back to this, and you know, people who have heard me you know, talk about this, I apologize for saying it again. But Say it again. In 2007, you know, I was in this meeting which, with Larry Sabato, the University of oh, Virginia yeah. political the science professor. crystal ball. He's the crystal and ball somebody guy. raised their hand. Remember, it's 2007, all right? Mm -hmm. And somebody raises their hand and said, what does it all matter? It's clear it's going to be Rudy Giuliani versus Hillary Clinton for president, and we should just give up. <laughs> you know, of course, neither yeah, one right. of them won their primaries, right. and the entire world changed. You know, so it's like a year in politics is a lifetime. I remember it's when like, always it, remember that it was going to be Jeb Bush for sure. Yeah, exactly. Please same clap. same concept. You know, Please a year clap. in politics is a lifetime. Please clap for this show because it's over. Thank you. All right. Um, that, that is definitely enough show. If you enjoy it, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast, and give us the best rating that you can. We would appreciate it, and we would love to have you as a subscriber at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com, and we will see you here next week to do this all over again. Mm -hmm.